Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we spoke with Rintu Thomas and Shushmit Ghosh about their film, Writing with Fire. We asked them what it was about. This is what Rintu told us. Writing with Fire is the story of a feisty group of journalists who run India's only newspaper that's run entirely by Dalit women who belong to the lowest caste in India. After 14 years of being in print, they make an audacious decision to go digital. Audacious because most of the women have never touched a smartphone. The film is about these women, their wit, their intellect, as they build a digital force. But it's also a very intimate story about women telling their own stories. Writing with Fire is played at over 90 festivals and won 17 international awards. The film had its world premiere at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival, where it won the Audience Award in the World Cinema Documentary category, as well as Special Jury Award, Impact for Change. The film's directors and producers, Rintu Thomas and Shushmit Ghosh, are based in India, where they split their time between New Delhi and a mountain town in North India. Writing with Fire is their feature documentary debut. Rintu Thomas is an award-winning director-producer whose work is supported by the Sundance Institute, Chicken and Egg Pictures, SF Film Fund, Doc Society, and the Tribeca Institute, among others. Over the last 10 years, her films have been used as advocacy tools for social impact, included in the curriculum of universities and exhibited globally in places such as the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Shushmit Ghosh is an award-winning director and cinematographer whose work has also been supported by the Sundance Institute and numerous other organizations and foundations. In 2009, he co-founded Black Ticket Films, a production company with a focus on social justice stories. I think everyone should see this film. It is just amazing to watch these women navigate these very difficult situations. You both recognize the stakes of the situation, and also it's a little bit disorienting if you're from a non-Indian context of exactly who these people are, what they're doing, what the motivations are. It's recognizable and yet somehow different. This really comes to play at its highest level when we see Prime Minister Modi and his BJP party which is a Hindu nationalist party coming to power. It's both very different in some ways from our context in the US, but also strikingly analogous in some ways that we discussed in the interview. These are first time feature directors, but it's clear that they have the commitment and the talent to be real forces in the documentary field. This film does an extraordinary job of going from the small and in particular and the intimate to the sprawling, the national, and the universal. It shows what you can do when you're willing to be patient and take the time. They said in the interview, I think, that they had basically the material they needed after two years, but they ended up shooting for another three. And that's what enabled them to really show the intimate side of these women reporters at the newspaper. And it, it really pays off. Coming up, our discussion with Rintu and Shushmit about their documentary, Riding with Fire. Rintu and Shushmit, welcome to Top Docs. Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure. Thanks for having us. And congratulations on the film. It's terrific. Thank, Thank you so much. Rintu, why do you make documentary films? To stay inspired. And it's through the, the films that I've made that I have met some the most surprising 
beautiful, inspiring people. It's their story that I love to share with the world. We live in a very complex world. We live in a world that many times doesn't make sense. And there are always people who exist on the margins, who have everything against them. Yet those are the ones who, who are trying to make this a better place, to put it simply. So storytelling for me is really decoding the world around me, asking questions, challenging, being okay with not having answers, but really feeling alive. So Schmidt, why do you make documentary films? I think I have a bit of an insidious answer. Somebody said cinema is witchcraft. As a filmmaker, you can, for 90 minutes, suspend your audience in a sort of an imaginarium and control their emotions and show them a world that you want them to see. And I think in documentaries, the experience can be much more visceral if done well. That's something that really excites me. And that's why I tell stories in this form, in this genre. I can see why you guys are a great documentary team because you have complementary reasons for why you're doing what you're doing. Your film is about a newspaper and a media outlet, Kabar Laheria, started by a group of Dalit women in the state of Uttar Pradesh in North India in 2002. Can you briefly explain, by way of background, India's caste system and where Dalits fit within that system? Caste is a complex theme to tackle, but I'll try and keep this brief. So it's an archaic social structure, 3,000 years old. It's the world's oldest social hierarchy, whereby the Hindu scriptures state that you are born into one of the four key castes, and each of the castes can be subdivided into further subcastes. And it's like a pyramid hierarchy. The Dalit community is considered so impure that they are kept outside the caste system. So when we chanced upon this story, essentially one of the things that drew us to it was here you had Dalit women who had taken pen and paper and were essentially working as journalists in a media dark region of India. Uh, a story that you would not often hear, especially from the Dalit community, because they've been historically always oppressed. I just wanted to add that, like, any insidious system of inequity, a structural inequity, the caste system, although it's archaic, has continuously reinvented itself. And it exists in all our lives in India in different ways. It plays out more starkly in rural India. The kind of historical disenfranchisement that happens when you're a then you're somebody who belongs to a Dalit community. For you, it's in your being, it's in your skin. You can't get out of it. And what you are meted out every day is social exclusion. You are told through many obvious and not so obvious ways, your life doesn't matter, you don't count. And so Dalit women have always borne the, the highest brutality of the caste system. And so to have the very same women now pulling a chair uh, at the table and saying we are here to tell our story in our own voice through our own lens was really phenomenal for us to encounter and in many ways in this film we see for the first time a visual representation of a Dalit woman in her own right and might as a colleague, an educator, as someone with a vision and, and someone who can articulate that vision, that kind of a power of Dalit women, even in Indian popular culture, does not exist. 
And so in many ways, what we got was a unique opportunity to be with them and hang out with these cool women for four years and tell a story that's both macro and intimate about who they really are and what their spirit is. I think one of the things that's so eye-opening about the film is the setting, where it takes place and the backdrop. Can you give us a bit of background about Uttar Pradesh, the region where the newspaper was founded? So Uttar Pradesh is India's most populous state. If Uttar Pradesh was a country, it would be the fifth largest in the world. It's a politically significant state, but it's also a state that is known for notoriously high levels of corruption, lawlessness. And the belt where we filmed this story in southern Uttar Pradesh is really known as the badlands of India because those districts report year on year the highest number of cases of sexual violence against women, the highest cases of violence against Dalits. And these are all sort of like loaded terms because we were filming with characters who are Dalit women journalists. Oh, incidentally, Uttar Pradesh also tops the charts for uh, maximum number of crimes committed against journalists, whether that be censor, arrest, or murder. So it's not an easy place to be working as an independent journalist. When you look at the caste context over here, although the practice of caste-based discrimination is banned in India, Uttar Pradesh is one of those states where it is practiced with a vengeance. Caste-oppressive violence is very common. So to have women from the Dalit community picking up their mobile phones, speaking truth to power is a visual that most people over here had never witnessed. I think most men, essentially, when they're asked questions by these women, a lot of times when we were filming would be very stumped, would not have an answer because they're used to seeing Dalit women clean their toilets, not used to Dalit women questioning them about budgetary deficits or why the health budget does not have a plan for maternal health. What drew us to this story was the fact that it was a news entity that was run entirely by Dalit women, but also the fact that there was a news organization that was based in this part of the country, which is extremely complex and an extremely difficult space for a journalist to practice journalism in. Incidentally, Khabar Lahiri turns 20 years this year. So they've spent two decades really um, bearing the torch of what independent journalism could be the values and the ethos, and really set a precedent not only for journalists in India, but globally. Every time the film's gone out in a festival or in a space, the responses to the work of these women has just been extraordinary for us to witness. We were lucky enough to be able to travel with Mira to ITFA in Amsterdam, the world's largest documentary festival, and to have her present the work that they've been doing in Uttar Pradesh to an international audience, the response of the dog-loving community over there was, well, just blew everyone's head and overwhelmed Mira. And I think that's one of the reasons why we make films, so that we are able to, as Rintu said, amplify the good in the world that we are living in and give people hope. And where we are able to bridge the distance between people like Mira, Sunita, and Shankali, and people who would have never, in more ways than one, otherwise experienced the richness of their story. 
Let's talk about the origins of Kabar Laharia, the newspaper. Kabar Laharia started as a social experiment when an NGO went into the rural parts of Uttar Pradesh and got together a group of women and said, if you were to create a newspaper, what would it look like? These women came up with a newsletter and for the first time in their own words and imagination and language, they were able to express stories that mattered to them that were missing from mainstream media. And that was a very powerful experience for them. So when the NGO moved out, the women wanted to continue in in a way like they had tasted blood. So a few women from the original NGO banded up with these women and um, Kabbalaria was born. I think the media landscape in Uttar Pradesh, generally in India, but specifically in Uttar Pradesh is dominated by men, mostly by dominant caste men. A lot of our mainstream media, the news that we have is seen through that upper caste male gaze. And Kabbalaria being in Uttar Pradesh where agency of women is so limited, I think the tool of media for these women to express themselves, to ask for accountability from men who are in positions of power, mostly upper caste, is phenomenal because caste is also a very spatial hierarchy. There are designated routes in a village where people belonging to a lower caste cannot access. If the upper caste community lives in one part of the village, it's prohibited for the lower caste to be accessing them. So it's, it's a spatial segregation. But by the virtue of being journalists, the women in our film can trespass and trespass with confidence because now they're, they're professional journalists. And that is where the past structures have shifted. And they have recentered the narrative to now have news through their gaze. So Kabbalaria is a very good example of what happens when we diversify our newsrooms. And in, in that sense, I think it resonates with pretty much all the newsrooms across the world. Let's go back to your starting point. When did you first become aware of Kabbalaria? We saw this interesting photo story online sometime in 2015 of a woman distributing newspapers in this arid landscape. What drew us to the story was the fact that this was a newspaper that was edited marketed and distributed by Dalit women. So when we reached out to them, they were curious why we wanted to make a film on them and how long this would take. We were quite frank about the fact that we had no clue and no idea what this ambitious sort of adventure meant. And they invited us for a meeting, their first team meeting where they were making a pitch from print to digital. And it's one of the earlier scenes in the film. That incidentally happened to be our first day of filming. In that three and a half, four hours that we were there with them, we really discovered the power, the wit, the intellect of these journalists who were talking about the issues of our times. This could be conversations that would be playing out at the New York Times where they were talking about readership and the relevance of running a print paper versus digital expanding demographics, the pressures of fighting off new competition, et cetera, et cetera. We knew instantly that we were on to a story that was doing something interesting because you were looking at two forces over here. You had a 3,000-year-old caste hierarchy that they were born out of, 
And on the other hand, they were playing with the unfettered force of the internet and new technologies. And in the middle, you had Dalit women who were going to anchor this story. And we were really interested in seeing what happens when these opposites collide. It took us about five years to put this film together. But as we stayed longer with them and dived deeper into their lives, it became a much more deeper, richer, personal story. While it also told the story of the newspaper and, in effect, the story of an India in flux. And diving in, one of the characters who really stands out is Sunita. Just an incredibly (laughs) impressive person who would probably do well in any context. But she goes into these situations, and I really want to dive into one. She traverses this very difficult road that's been hammered by illegal mining. She arrives in the village. She's confronted by a, a large and doubtful group of men who seemingly are led by this one gentleman who has stylized hair and sunglasses. He's got his cell phone prominently displayed. I was just really amazed by this interaction and the way she stands up for herself and stays on course. Who was this gentleman and what's going on in this scene? To me, while being shooting, it felt like a theater of the absurd because here she was reporting on the road and reporting it in a way that would be beneficial to them. And yet there was such aggressive resistance. So as the scene played out, I understood that there is such deep disregard and mistrust of the media amongst the communities. And generally, I think this dude who was clearly positioning was getting kicks out of mansplaining a woman and making her job even harder for her. And our Sunita and her chutzpah of just holding her ground and really enveloped in the sense of purpose for which she was there. She's such a colorful personality. She has far too many dimensions that one can explore in a 90-minute film. But most of all, what really comes strikingly clear is that she stands up for what she believes in and she will hold her ground if it's a man in a sunglass challenging her on a road or whether it's her senior in a meeting and she doesn't agree with her. So that spirit of truly believing what you stand for is very attractive in her. We see that in her and as you're saying, we see some of the gender politics playing out here and maybe some sense of the antagonistic relationship between the press and the people. There's an interesting kind of sequence where he basically says, am I supposed to bribe you? And she says, no, that's not why I report. And what's going on with that? For context, Khabar Lehri at that time were the only women reporters in that particular region. When newspapers hire women journalists, usually they're given the softer beats of cinema, maybe softer beats like fashion, food, etc., There is a disbelief that a woman can be an investigative journalist or she can do political beats. And that's the main difference in the way Kavalaria functions because Sunita loves doing investigative reports. If there's a crime, that's the story what Sunita wants to do. But everywhere we went, we felt that people generally had a sense of mistrust because if you want your story to be told, you bribe the journalist. And that's like an unwritten rule. So I think that's the general perception that people have towards media. And when Khabarleria lands up and says, we don't want anything from you. In fact, the only thing we want is a bite so that we can amplify your story and make sure that the road is built. Or question why this road breaks down every single year, despite 
a chunk of a budget going towards construction every year. It's again a force anti-force situation where the women constantly get mansplained, constantly patronized. But you know, Sunita is also curious because she doesn't see the men as antagonistic. For her, it's we're peers. I don't agree with your style. If you want to be patronizing, sure. But I would treat you as a colleague. So she hangs out with them, has a very comfortable body language, will hitch a ride if she needs to get to a, a village quicker than others. So it's also how you negotiate these patriarchal spaces day in and day out. How does one fight patriarchy? By understanding how it works and then going at it in your own smart ways. I think that's my biggest learning from Sunita. You described this scene as the theater of the absurd, and I couldn't help but also think there's also a camera crew shooting this, meaning you guys. And I was just curious, either in this scene or in any other, were there any other moments perhaps where your presence called attention to the reporters and just maybe altered what was happening in terms of people's behavior? For the most part, when we were following them into the spaces of these villages, people really didn't bother about us because the assumption was these folks must be with Khabar Laheria because they're also carrying their cameras and they're with the journalists that we've seen around here for a while. So that was one of those assumptions that they made, although we did clearly look different from the crowd. We did stand apart. I think that was one of the tactical reasons why we decided to write early on in the filming to keep the crew lean and limited to three. We shifted our gear to DSLRs. Uh, there was no boom rods for recording. Rintu essentially doubled up as the sound recordist on ground. Um, role, I might say, she quite hated in the beginning, <laughs> but she took to it eventually. So we kept the crew very lean, the equipment unobtrusive in that sense. We didn't film with tripods. There were no lights. We were filming on the go. Everything was handheld. I think some of the rules that we set between us was that irrespective of whatever happens on the ground, to never interfere with what's playing out. If you miss a shot, if you miss a moment, if you miss a dialogue, you miss it. And we'll have to pivot from that. And also it was sort of like a choreography between spaces that were hostile and spaces that were deeply traumatic. And I think that when the journalists saw us filming them, and they knew that our approach was unobtrusive. They began to trust us as professionals. And that trust eventually led to friendship. Once that bond was settled, I think it became this sort of seamless choreography where we knew automatically when to whip out our cameras and when not to. And I think that being with them in these spaces automatically allowed us great access to film in these parts of the country. If we didn't have them, then there would be a lot of questions asked or eyebrows raised. Although there were a few occasions where we would walk into these larger administrative buildings or police offices where officers would ask us, actually would ask Mira or Sunita, who are these men? Because we thought you are an all-women run uh, news outfit. And either one of them would quite sort of, you know, straight-faced go, Oh yeah, there are trainees from Delhi. That's how we would pass off. 
so yeah, I, I, I think we fairly successfully managed to remain in the shadows. And I think it was also a part of the approach that we were trying to build in because we wanted to film the film as observational as possible because the rule was, imagine the viewer is standing right next to Mira or Sunita. What would that world look and feel like? Can we talk less and show more? Can we build more scenes? So that pushed us more into thinking about what spaces are we going into? What angles are we going to set this up as? And where are our protagonists going to be? But as we spend more time on ground with them, we intuitively knew how they would be moving through these spaces and negotiating with people. So that really helped. I, I think when we started the project, we thought we would take about two years to complete the film. And we might have as well, because we had enough material. But I think that the depth that the story has and the richness, and I feel that the intimacy that it has would not have been realized. It would have been a very different kind of story and would looked very different. So, so the time we spent on ground allowed us to tell the story the way it has evolved to be. There's another scene where Sunita's at what seems like a mini press conference with the police. And she asks pretty straightforward questions and the other male reporters who also have a sense of urbanity about them, some of them, chide her for what they consider her negativity, praise him first, they say. And it really struck me that in some ways her status as an outsider to this group actually makes her a better reporter. She's not bought into the system that they're benefiting from. That's my favorite scene. It almost went out. It actually went out of the film and then came back in. Yeah, that, <laughs> that scene was a very curious one. While filming, I think... Absolutely. What I saw was her strength and vulnerability both come out because she was definitely not a part of the gang and therefore was hitting a big wall with the police officer who was out there to give her very staid responses. And yet she knew how to work that interview. The men she was with were colleagues, but at the slightest hint, go and, and chide her. And just the way she maneuvers and works the room, there were many ways in which she could have responded to the kind of energy between the police officer and the male journalist. But the way she does, the way she holds her body, the way she laughs and really puts her point across in a way that is, for the lack of a better word, cool. I think that's how you navigate patriarchy and, and the intersection of media and gender here, where they make it very clear that they have very little respect for her line of questioning or reporting. But at the same time, they find it hard to ignore that there is a person who is actually asking the right questions. For me, in many ways, it's a microcosm of the larger story where the media mainstream and uh, male-led tells us to believe in a kind of reality and an alternative perspective is not always welcome. There's resistance, but the way the women do it, I think it's, it's so smart. And many, as Sushma was saying, we had huge debates around that scene because it just wouldn't sit well within the different edits of the film because it's such a standalone piece. But the day we arrived at situating it between two different scenes and it just fit in beautifully, we were just like, fantastic. It was quite a moment. I wanted to ask about the switch to digital for the paper, which is obviously a key moment in its history. It sounds like that's where you picked up the story when you started filming. But there are a lot of risks associated with that as well. Of course, risks for mainstream media outlets, as well as a 
relatively bootstrapped media organization like Kabbalaria. India, I think, has tremendous cell phone penetration, but obviously lots of challenges. There's one scene, in fact, where we see that one of the reporters doesn't have access to electricity to charge her batteries. Can you just describe the immense challenges and opportunities of going digital as they were making this transition? In that first meeting, I think the the big debate was that they were running about 5,000 prints of the newspaper, the physical edition every month. When they did an analysis, they discovered that anywhere between 15,000 to 18,000 was the readership. And I think one of the bets that they were hedging was that with the deep penetration of the mobile phone in the Indian market, I mean, you might not have electricity at home, but you will definitely have a mobile phone connection and access to YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, so on and so forth. That was the wave to ride. And it was a huge risk for Mira and Khabar Leheria, essentially because most of the team had never experienced this kind of technology before. And that was one of the reasons why we also have the third character in the film, Shamkali, who essentially personifies this aversion to technology, never touched a mobile phone in her life, has no clue what Facebook is, let alone an understanding of the English letters on a keypad. These were the challenges that Mira was up against when she was deciding to lead the shift from print to digital, but she knew that the opportunities were huge. And I think that this appetite for risk comes from the fact that They had done it before when everybody imagined that they would fail. There's a moment in the film where Mira's husband says, well, you've been around for a while, but if the big media companies have had to shut down, how long are you going to survive? And then you see what happens by the end of the film. So I think Mira is an obstinate visionary and led the flock, so to speak. She never gave up on this idea of what if we are able to do this successfully? Because 14 years ago, we made a newsletter, newspaper, and it became big. What if we make the newspaper a digital news agency and it becomes big? And uh, it worked out for them. And incidentally, 2020, the pandemic was their biggest year. It was a watershed moment for them because while most other mainstream media outlets in their region were grappling and trying to shift to digital, the women already had a very strong platform and, and a base And they really rapidly built on that. The number of partnerships increased. And Sunita went on to lead this new e-learning module for journalists. And they were able to expand the organizational structure. And now they have moved into three new geographies in India. So they've expanded as a news agency. So they are only growing from strength to strength and really are a model uh, newspaper or a news agency for any broadsheet in the world, so to speak. The other side of this is that not only does digital become a platform for them to spread their word, but of course it involves them in the realm of social media. And you do a wonderful job of showing this. You show the Hindi script kind of transmuting into English. At first, we get a lot of sense of their success and we get a lot of gratitude for a village gets medicine, another electricity, and one gets water for the canal. But then towards the end, we see the other side of it, which is this virulent hate address towards them. Can you talk a bit about how this sort of threw them into that world of the social media and discussion and feedback from the audience? That realization, that dichotomy uh, was, I think, apparent to them very early on. 
because in many villages where they would go and this happened twice when we were with them these young men would start making videos of them at first they were just confused about what to do and then they found the the body language and the language to question that and say i am a journalist i have the credentials to film why are you filming me so very early on the whole act of shooting and being shot at and the danger inherent were apparent and that's the great thing about khawileria everything is discussed there's a great sense of sisterhood so in these weekly meetings they discuss everything and strategies were built around okay if this happens we do this but you know there are things that nothing prepares you for for instance when we talk about trolls and online trolls if you're a city based journalist you put out a story and people are trolling you there is a sense that there is a cloak of invisibility between you and your troll because you don't know who that person is and that person is physically distant from you in this case your troll could be living in the village that you are headed into could be the person sitting next to you in the bus because everybody knows you everybody knows your name everybody knows your village and where your father's house is so it's a lot more visceral i think the dangers of social media while they exist digitally but they penetrate the real world in this kind of scenario and that is something that they constantly grapple with day in and day out but they're very smart their strategy is to constantly engage with their trolls why is it that you disagree with me okay so you call me a slut but why is the profession of sexual workers so abhorrent for you i don't think it's an abuse because i think she earns a living by the means that she knows how to and aren't you the part of that gender who gives her the finances to continue her profession so that's the line of engagement and my favorite story is kavita one of the secondary characters in the film who's also one of the co-founders of Kavaleria was in a bus once and the there's this man sitting next to him and say oh you're Kavita from Kavaleria i am that person who keeps trolling is putting these comments he had these nasty comments all the time on her stories and she said oh you are the guy what's your deal and they had a conversation and by the end of that bus ride it was a beautiful moment where she whipped out her phone and took a selfie with her troll the dangers are real but it's a part of the process of being a journalist and definitely being a journalist in the digital space they're deeply aware of it and it's just another of those complex realities that they wade through on an everyday basis ironically i think one of the most difficult spaces these women have to traverse is at home they face situations where for instance mira's husband he's skeptical of what she's doing and of the prospects for the paper sunita has challenges with her parents and pressures to get married as you were getting to know these women better and shooting more with them in their homes did they talk to you about these pressures because it strikes me that they have a very tough exterior on the job but there are these forces largely at home that put a lot of pressure on them and i wondered how that played out as you got to know them better very slowly as the trust grew and we spent more and more time first with them in the field and very slowly we started getting invited into their homes we would just spend time with their families without the camera just getting to know everybody the husbands the fathers the children so there at some point 
there was a moment where everybody was comfortable with each other and the men especially meera's husband knew that we weren't out there to judge him he is a complex person he is definitely not the strength beneath her wings but also in his own quiet ways does make sure that he's not stopping her from doing what she wants to do it's a push and pull emotionally and i think the toughest battles are the ones that we all fight within our homes the guilt of a woman of a working mother actually do i spend more time with my kids or do i do the story that needs to be done and is there a meeting point in the middle we wanted to explore that how do you reconcile with the fact that your husband doesn't really believe that you can make a difference how do you reconcile with that and and yet continue to do what you believe in i think the financial independence that the women have because of their profession really contributes to the way they themselves perceive what their space is within the family because usually the role given to them is that of caretakers not decision makers and here in this case each of these women were the sole breadwinners of their family so therefore how the finances would be spent which school the children would be sent to how much the girls are going to study these are decisions that now they are making which is very different yet adds to their sense of the politics of what they do so in many ways the personal and the professional merges but there is a deep sense of are we really free is this what empowerment looks like and we've had many deep conversations in fact sushmit and meera have had many conversations the fact that we are a couple uh, and we are a mixed faith couple opened up many conversations about how we navigated resistance from our families while we were getting married so those kind of conversations that's not in the film but it makes the process of getting to know each other and trusting each other more richer as the paper is switching to digital what's going on in india is also very profound which is the rise of modi and the bjp can you explain to our audience who modi is and what the bjp stands for the bjp is an acronym for the bharatiya janata party it's one of the major political parties in india they are hindu right leaning political organization Prime Minister Modi is the leader of the party, the leader of the country, and they came to power in India in 2014. That was a watershed moment for the country, and I think over the course of the past seven years, the very fabric of this democracy has been tested, and in many places torn. I think systems that are meant to ensure. Uh, a vibrant and a healthy democracy have been corroded and consciously corrupted the environment that we are living in is not very different from what's happening in other parts of the globe so you see the rise of uh, populist regimes right through from philippines all the way through to turkey under erdogan western europe now struggling you had four years under trump they seem to be playing out of the same playbook i think one of the the key sort of points of attack for all of these establishments has typically been the fourth estate first india has been no exception to that most if not all of the mainstream press now is sympathetic towards the government there is little if any critical news reporting 
left in the country except for a handful of independent media outlets and most of them are based out of cities either mainstream cities or peri urban areas or townships so so to have a news institution that's led entirely by dalit women operating out of rural parts of the country which are i would say really the badlands of the country that heart of the country that you see in the film really is the dark corner of india if i were to put it that way so to have women working there as independent journalists covering crime illegal mining corruption in the administration sexual violence taking up beats that are risky for men speaks to the integrity and ethos of what this news outfit has been doing essentially they've been shining a light on how the job gets done the fact that they have become so popular that growth has been driven entirely organically because they don't have the marketing dollars for social media so those 170 171 million views on youtube alone is actual proper viewership so their popularity is testimony to the fact that there is value in that kind of journalism still in the last third of the film or so we see mira is going to do essentially a portrait of a young man who's the head of this hindu youth brigade which seems affiliated with the bjp we have a couple of scenes with him and in our first glimpse he seems very focused on religious themes he's displaying this sword rather prominently which is a bit frightening our first initial glimpses of him he's not a terribly sympathetic character i would say however in a later scene he reveals that his father was a farmer who committed suicide and he himself is not really able to continue that livelihood so we begin to see the roots of some of his beliefs and maybe his political leanings can you discuss how he's portrayed in the film when we met satyam for the first time i especially was prepared to meet someone i would dislike because i come from a religious minority community in india and everything that he was saying was against so to speak people like me people like meera so i was prepared that i'm going to disagree with him and and between the both of us we knew that we wouldn't be posing any questions because we are here with meera and her line of questioning is what is of interest to the story and as she went about doing that slicing his argument little by little and then eventually going for his juggler but at the same time doing it with great gentleness and respect we realized there is more to him than he is putting out there he was very courteous offered us biscuits and coke lived in a small hut and so it was just like between us people what is his story where does he come from it's easy to dislike disagree and brand people as extremists and oh this is a person i'm going to i disagree with and therefore i need to cancel him or her out but we got very interested in okay here's a person i disagree with but what's his story the next few times she went to interview him we asked if it's okay that if he could accompany and he said yeah sure we understood that there's a process to othering of one community from the other it's like centuries in some case or decades it's a whole cultural preparation 
and you could see in satyam and in his story some of the elements of that this is the kind of young people who follow larger movements because in their own personal lives they are completely disadvantaged they don't see a future for themselves financially they've not finished their education so they don't see a world of opportunities for themselves and then suddenly comes sometimes it's a political party sometimes it's a movement in which they are given importance in which they are told you are more special because everybody else around you doesn't deserve to be here you're supposed to find meaning in your identity by disliking or in this case hating another community that is where they derive a sense of purpose and i don't like using the word brainwashing you know because satyam is very smart and he's extremely shrewd in understanding that his religious position can actually be a ladder for his political ambitions and so we wanted to give him more depth so that it's difficult for the audience to write him off as just some guy some random guy who has a sword it's it's all intentional and from a storytelling point of view he is the anti force and so we we allowed ourselves to spend more time with him and he we actually became friends that's true honestly it's a weird thing to say but he is a likable character and 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 karan who who is shooting with me the three of us hung out a lot with him for me he he signifies this whole idea of the savagery that man is capable of if he believes his cause to be just and 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 that's what satyam is a complex mix of that and in a sense the values that he believes in him being in the film for us was really important because he gave a face to the rise of the right so to speak what does it look like and he signified essentially the direction that the country in a sense was taking or the choices that we were making and satyam was one of them you have a man with a sword in his hand or the other side you have a woman with a mobile phone which path do you want to take these were the choices that we were also then battling with on the edit because when we started the film we knew we had three clear characters all of them women journalists but we were always looking for something to happen to the story for it to be able to move into a direction that would surprise the audience and us we didn't want it to just be the story of a newspaper in transition it had to be something more and it had to be the story of india as they say some of these things are just scripted by fate for you satyam just came along and his being in the film gave us a new direction we landed up with four characters and he ended up jostling with a lot of space with shamkali who's the character who's scared of technology in the film she has a beautiful arc in the storyline and there are many scenes from shamkali's own life that get culled out of the film because of satyam jostling for space with her but i think satyam was significant for us to have in the story to essentially talk about the direction india might be taking having said all of that our film was never intended to be just a political statement or a simplified representation of india's deep complex wounds we wanted to stay true to the characters and the way that they were treating these wounds with compassion with resilience with persistence so every time it was always seen through the eyes of either a meera or a sunita or a shamkali like that perspective 
In some ways, Shimkali seems to show the most growth as a reporter. She starts out having to learn the basics. Mira is, is helping coach her to improve her reporting skills. And then toward the end of the film, she goes to a village to investigate a rape. She talks to the police. She manages to get the father's phone number, goes to talk to him. And then eventually she speaks with the girl and her mother. It's, it's a remarkable job of reporting. It almost feels like a tutorial about how to report a story. Then we learn that when the story goes online, that within a week of it going up, the accused rapist was arrested and prosecuted. Can you talk about Shamkali's growth as a reporter? Shamkali always had this duality about her. She's so fragile looking. She's petite, she's small, looks vulnerable with technology. Yet at the same time, there is something very steely and fiery about her, very strong. We knew because the way she expressed her absolute fright of technology in that meeting, we thought it would be nice to like spend time with her before we zero in on the third character. But I think within the first few days, we realized that this is the greatest contribution of Kabbalaria, where the weakest link in the system would be given so much attention and, and encouragement by a leader like Neera that to Shamkali, every time she went back to her job, she believed that she could do it better. That's really the message that Kabbalaria puts out there, that you matter, your life matters, and what you do matters. Her arc was the slowest because she took almost a year to just come around technology. And while Sunita just immediately flew and quickly became very well-versed and she was beginning to train other people. With Shamkari, it was always about hitting a new obstacle when she went reporting. And that day, Sushmat and I were with her. She was going to report the story on a minor's rape. When the village stonewalled her, we in our heads went like, ah, okay, she's going to call up Meera and say, oh, this is a problem, that is a problem. But she didn't. And she went to the police station and she found the number and she was with the father. And that moment with the father is very powerful because it captures the, the dichotomy that all of us as filmmakers, photographers, photojournalists have. When you see a human tragedy unfolding in front of you, do you continue filming because that's your job? Or do you stop and offer humanity because that person could benefit from some at that point? And I think... Shamkali beautifully makes the right decision. She's both a professional and a person at that moment. Her passion shines through, her professionalism shines through. So that, again, speaks to the larger theme of the film of here's a band of women who believe that they have a sense of purpose, that if they don't do it, nobody else will. And so they'll try harder. And giving up is just not an option. So... There's also a really interesting little sequence towards the end of the film where Sunita goes to a conference in Sri Lanka about the challenges that women journalists face. And we have a shot of her on the beach. You indicate that she's the one who's shooting this. And that's not you folks shooting it. And she's just sort of enjoying the beach. She's enjoying the waves. And I can certainly see some people thinking, well, this doesn't seem to really belong in this film. Why did you decide to include it? From a visual perspective, I think... 
just her face captures who she really is deep within free unfettered wanting to be independent in her thought just her hair flying the open sea and just her just being herself i think that visual was very striking for us both in the chronology of her life and in the in chronology of the film that after that moment she actually disconnected with all of us for a while and was making this hard decision about whether to get married or not so in the film that's really the last image of her being herself before we get to know the choice she makes and the last shot which is really a direct consequence of that choice so we had these oh my god these debates these raging debates about should we put it in context is that a little snippet because in terms of form it doesn't really complement the rest of the film it like sticks out it's a moment of silence but every time we came back to that visual it just felt like here's a young woman who's happy who's happy at the fact that she is in a space both literally and figuratively in her life where she can express herself she can dream and believe that those dreams are just a feet away and then things dramatically change so in the whole structure of the film it sometimes it, it in a way felt like it's good that it's sticking out it's it calls into attention the fact that this is short lived yeah that's what i felt too it made what happens almost immediately thereafter all that much more devastating because we see her in this moment of freedom and then we get this announcement that she's leaving the paper because she's getting married can you talk about that decision for her cuz for us i felt oh my gosh india's losing this incredible person it was crushing for us because this was the fourth year of us being with them in the field filming and so we'd become really thick friends yet a part of us knew that sunita would come back to the paper because you can't keep journalism out of sunita that's something that we'd learned like through the years and we were very curious to see how long she would make this stick how long would she stay away from the paper there had to be some way she would find her way back but when that happened i think it collectively surprised everybody no one expected her to give up her role in the organization and i think those are the complexities of the choices that you have to make especially if you're a woman and this whole idea of the burden that women have to carry as mothers as daughters as sisters in our homes in society as leaders and i think that she was making a choice for her family and not for herself it, it wasn't easy for her when she came back i think collectively the entire team i'm including the post team we were in the edit we were actually deep in the edit towards closing the film when sunita told us that she would be coming back and and i remember that the sound designers the studio assistants everybody let out a little whoop everyone got really invested in sunita's personal arc and her story and where she would go and what choices she would make because she has such an infectious energy to her and a zest for life so to see her crawled up in that last shot that you see in the film is heartbreaking and that's one of the choices that we all played on with it is the longest shot in the film i think it's about 35 40 seconds and it breaks your heart but then towards the end we flip it with the text so yeah sunita sort of is symbolic of the complexity of choices that we all face more so women 
Near the end of the film, we see a religious ceremony for Lord Ram, one where the celebrants are wearing the colors, in some cases, even the insignia of the BJP. It's a beautiful ceremony, and you get a sense of the power of it and how Modi and the BJP are leveraging religious iconography in this sort of move towards Hindu nationalism. Mira has a voiceover towards the end of that sequence. One day, our children will ask us, what were we doing when our country was changing? and the media was silenced. This film is obviously about this woman and this paper. It's about Uttar Pradesh. It's about India. But also, as you've noted, these are themes that carry all over the world, right? We're in an era where our political systems are changing and the, the media is coming under a lot of pressure. When you were doing the film, were you thinking about the very broad worldwide implications of what you were seeing? We were conscious of it, yeah. Yeah, this film is in many ways our own response to the changing times yeah. in yeah. our lives, in our country's life and history. So much of how we perceive the change in India's political, social, moral fabric is captured in this mm -hmm. film. So I think many years from now, decades, when my kids ask me, what were you doing? when the things were dramatically changing in our country, what were we doing? I think I can say that I was amplifying the story of change makers, of hope builders, hope manufacturers, because it's a discussion about the state of politics of our country. I am mostly articulate because I can't. It's just, it's hard for me to process and build an argument and be cogent. But it's when I'm making my films, I feel like I'm most articulate. In fact, both of us, I think, it's a conversation that we are having between us, us and the characters and us and our viewers. In, in a bizarre way, we are living in a very fractured, yet a world where a lot of it is similar. It's not our own individual unique reality anymore. It's a shared reality and therefore shared lessons for everyone. And that's why I think a lot of times when the film is written about, they use the word inspired, a lot, like almost every review has that. And that really is where it comes from. That sense of there is hope because these women exist. I have to say, I have three sons and I really want them to watch this film. It's just really great example of how to stand up for what you believe in, to keep sympathy, keep compassion and be passionate, but not be angry, not be defensive, but to face these challenges with dignity and compassion and a real sense of purpose. I just think these women are incredible models for that. Yeah, absolutely. I hope your sons can watch. We can't recommend writing with fire highly enough. We want as many people as possible to go out and see this film. Where can people see writing with fire? In, in limited sort of theatrical capacity because of what COVID sort of doing all across the world, but it is playing through Jan, Feb and March. Music Box Films has a page which lists all the theatres where the film will be playing. It is coming to Independent Lens. It's coming to Independent Lens on the 28th of March, where we are, which we are very excited about. If you're interested on... Um, staying up to speed on what's happening with the film and where it might be next, you could follow the social media handles of the film. On Instagram, we are writingwithfire.film. On Facebook, we are writingwithfire.film. And you'll have all your updates over there. I think at one point you described Mira, who is in charge of the paper's transition to going digital, as an obstinate visionary. 
I'm not so sure about the obstinate part, but I think the visionary part certainly applies to both of you who took this extraordinary five-year journey to make this film. And we want to congratulate you on writing with fire. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Ken. This was just such a pleasure. This is like a really fun conversation. Thank you so much. you have a hidden gem, uh, a documentary film that you think doesn't get the attention that it should get? There is a film that I absolutely think should be watched everywhere. It's called Superman of Malegaon. It's an Indian documentary by director Feza Khan. It's a story about a ragtag group of film enthusiasts in a small town village in India who want to make a film. They have no resources, no training. The film is about them making the film, and it, I think the film is now 15 years old, very much ahead of its time, has memorable characters, and observational filmmaking at its best. A film that comes to mind is one I saw a bunch of years ago called A Woman Captured. It's a story about a woman who's been enslaved in a home for nearly 10 years, and the filmmaker on a lark as a student project starts filming her, gets access to film her, and then over the course of time, you see this beautiful intimate relationship developing between her and this elderly lady, and eventually she decides to escape from this house, and then what happens? It's a gorgeous film, but I feel it just wasn't seen as much as it should have been.